Well, who is Jesus? Uh, It's a question that's been thrown around for 2,000-odd years, and it seems there's no end of options to consider. So there's people who think that Jesus was a great moral teacher. You know, he was really insightful about how to live and how we should treat one another, but, you know, that's all he was, a great moral teacher. Uh, Others think that Jesus was insane because, you know, only people who have lost it think that they're divine. Still, there's others who hold to the theory that Jesus was a tin trader who went to Britain. There's the theory that he was a time traveller. Some say he was actually a Buddhist. Or my personal favourite, there's the theory that Jesus was an alien. That's how he could do the miraculous. So the star above Bethlehem was actually a UFO. And Jesus' ascension back into heaven uh, was actually him returning to the mothership. Any number of theories... Who is Jesus really? Our vision statement here at uh, Dubbo Prezi Church is that we're growing followers of Christ Jesus. Over the next five weeks here at church, we're going to be fleshing out what that means. Today, we're simply zeroing in on who Jesus is that we would follow him. In the coming weeks, we'll think about what it looks like to follow him. This morning is all about who are we following? And it's a really important question to get right Because who you think Jesus is will dictate what it means for you to be his follower. So if you think he's an alien gone back to the mothership, well, following him will mean trying to get in contact with the alien so that you can go and join him. If you think he's a great moral teacher, well, then your life will be about living by a set of moral codes. If we're growing followers of Jesus, we need to be clear on who Jesus actually is to know what it means to follow him. To answer that question, of course, we're going to turn to the Bible so that we can hear from Jesus himself. Go straight to the horse's mouth and listen to Jesus tell us who he is. So come with me to Mark chapter 8. As as you know, it's on the inside of your bulletin because it's here that Jesus puts the question of who he is front and centre to his disciples. Jesus knows who he is. He wants to know what his disciples are thinking and he eases into the question by first asking them what other people are saying about him. So verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? Now that's an easy question, isn't it? It's not too confronting or personal, you know. Tell me, fellas, what are people saying about me? So they give him the top three theories around about who he is. Verse 28. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, the reason for these theories is that Jesus has been doing really remarkable, miraculous things up until this time, and people are trying to work out where he gets his power from. So if he's John the Baptist, well, John was killed back in chapter 6, And so maybe Jesus has come back from the dead and that's how he's harnessing supernatural powers. Or if he's Elijah, well, Elijah's been gone for around 800 years, but God did promise that Elijah would come back. Maybe that's who Jesus is. Or maybe Jesus is simply a prophet from God and that's how he can do what he does. Now, it's not the first time these three theories have been put forward. Back in chapter 6, the exact same three ideas were mentioned back then. 
And in fact, the question of who Jesus is has been driving the whole narrative of Mark's gospel right up until now. So back in chapter one, an evil spirit blurts out that he knows who Jesus is. In chapter two, uh, religious leaders ask the question, who does Jesus think he is? In chapter four, Jesus' best friends ask, who is this man? In chapter six, people from his hometown declare that Jesus is just Mary's boy. Also in chapter six, the crowds are thinking Jesus is John the Baptist, Elijah or a prophet. It gets repeated here in chapter eight. Because Mark's big question in the first half of his book is, who is Jesus? And it's all coming to a head here in chapter 8 as Jesus corners his own disciples on this exact question. So he's asked them what the crowds are saying about him, but now from verse 29 he gets personal and he asks the disciples directly, no more hiding behind what other people think. Tell me where you stand. Verse 29. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? No more skirting around the edges now, is there? It's right up close and personal. What about you? Who do you say I am? And we should be very interested in what the disciples have to say. Because they're not part of the crowds who only get to see or hear Jesus occasionally. You know, they're not, the disciples aren't part of the rumour mill where they're just trying to piece things together as best they can. The disciples, they've got the inside scoop. They've been living with Jesus. He's been teaching them privately. Of all the people who've got an opinion about Jesus, it's the disciples' opinion that we would want to hear because they're the closest to him. And so what do the disciples think? Who do they think he is? Well, verse 29 again, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. That is the first time in Mark's gospel that someone has spilled the beans. Jesus, you are the Christ. That's who you are. And Jesus lets them know that they're right. You're right, fellas. I am the Christ. Don't tell anyone yet, but I am the Christ. And it is a massive thing to say. Although for many people today, the weight of what's being said is lost on them because today Christ can be thought of as Jesus' surname, or it's something that you say when you hit your hand with a hammer. Uh, But Christ isn't Jesus' surname. It was never intended to be an expletive. Christ, it's just a normal word in the Bible. It simply means the anointed one. For the Israelites, they would anoint their kings. So Christ came, became a way of referring to Israel's king, which means they had lots of Christs because they'd had lots of kings. But right throughout the Old Testament, God made many promises about a certain Christ that would come. God promised that one day Israel would have a king who would not just rule Israel, he'd rule the entire world. And he'd rule the world forever. He wouldn't just be our Christ, he would be the Christ. The last and greatest of all Christs because he'd rule over all things for all time. And for all the people who were in this Christ's kingdom, well, life would be wonderful as they enjoyed the good rule of God's all-conquering king, but the enemies of the Christ, well, they would be crushed under his worldwide rule. For anyone to resist the rule of the Christ, well, that would mean certain disaster. And Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ. Verse 
Not a Christ, the Christ. In a presidential election campaign in the US, someone running for the presidency goes all over the place campaigning and they're giving countless speeches and usually when they're introduced before they give a speech, the person introducing them finishes with a line like, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Bob Jones, the next president of the United States. You know, this confident announcement that their guy will be president. Now, even if they happen to be right, the best they can hope for is that their guy will be president for the next eight years, but it's a big deal and people go crazy about maybe their guy being the president. Now, what we have here in Mark 8, it's not a public rally, it's just Jesus with his closest friends, but Peter's come out and said it. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Christ, the ruler of the world. And he won't just rule for eight years. This guy, Jesus from Nazareth, he's going to rule our planet forever and ever and ever. Jesus, you are the Christ. For Jesus' part, he knows it. He's known it for ages. The disciples have finally cottoned on. They've got it right, but Jesus doesn't want everyone to know just yet, so he tells them, keep it under your lids for the time being. We're told he warns them not to tell anyone about him, but now that they've worked out who he is, that he is the Christ, now that they know, Jesus immediately starts telling them what it'll mean, what it'll look like for him to be the Christ. Now, just for a moment, try and put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. You've just blurted out that the king that God has been promising for the last thousand years, he's actually your best friend. You would be going crazy, wouldn't you? I mean, holy dooly, the guy who is literally going to rule the world and he's your mate. And you've got in your head what that's going to look like. You know, Jesus, he's going to be at the head of a juggernaut of an army. He's going to take out all your enemies. He's going to rule over all the nations of the earth. Things are going to change around here and they're going to change for the better. Jesus, you are the Christ and we're right here alongside you. Bring it on. But then Jesus bursts their bubble with this bombshell. That being the Christ means he'll be executed. Yes, he's the Christ. He's the suffering Christ. Verse 30 again. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That is such a huge letdown for the disciples. They had their hopes pinned on Jesus being the all-conquering Christ. And Jesus says they're right, but what that means is that he must suffer. The leaders of Israel, they're going to hate him and they'll have him killed, executed. But then after that, three days later, he'll come back to life. Being the Christ, Jesus says, will mean rejection, suffering and brutal execution. And it's just all too much for the disciples to take in. They don't get it. The long-awaited ruler of the entire world, and you're saying that means rejection, suffering, and death? I imagine for the disciples, they would have been speechless, just completely bewildered. Except for Peter. Uh, He's got ticker, this one. 
And even though he has just declared that Jesus is the Christ, the one who will rule over all people for all time, even though Peter's just put Jesus on the highest pedestal imaginable, he then has the nerve to tell Jesus off and pull him aside. That's not the program, Jesus. Hang on. Come here for a second. Let me straighten you out. Then we can get on with this whole ruling the world thing. Verse 32. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, good luck with that, Peter. Rebuking the Christ. That takes guts. Telling the king of the world what he should do. And Jesus takes offence because he is the Christ and he knows what he has to do to rule the world and he is not going to let Peter or anyone sidetrack him from his road to the throne as the Christ. He must die and he's not going to let Peter stand in his way. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Talk about awkward. Peter's just told Jesus that he's the Christ. Jesus returns the favour by telling Peter he's an agent of the devil. And that's because Peter's trying to steer Jesus away from what he must do. In verse 31, Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and he must be killed and after three days rise again. And that's because it's the only way that anyone else can join him in his wonderful kingdom. Jesus, the the all-powerful Christ, he's not going to come to the throne by a show of force. The way to the throne for the Christ is by sacrificial love. He will die, as he said, by execution, not for his crimes or his sins, but for ours. He willingly gave up his life to save us from our sins, to rescue us from the judgment of God that we deserve. He came to take that judgment for us by dying in our place. This is why Jesus said that as the Christ, he must be executed. He must die because he's going to save people from their sin so that we can join him in his glorious kingdom. For Jesus to rule over all people and all things for all time, he must conquer sin and death. And so as the Christ, he must die for the sin of the world. And then he must rise from the dead. This morning we're thinking about who Jesus is that we would follow him. And from Jesus' own lips, this is who he is. He's the Christ the one who had to suffer and die for us. Now, as I said right at the start, who you think Jesus is will dictate what it means for you to be his follower. So if Jesus is the suffering Christ, what do we think it will mean for us to follow him? Well, of course, it will mean suffering for us too which is exactly what Jesus goes on to spell out for everyone listening that day. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow the suffering Christ, you too will suffer. It's not going to be convenient 
to follow the Lord Jesus. It's not going to suit our own personal preferences. Following Jesus, by definition, can't mean following your dreams because you're following the Christ. It's going to be hard. It'll come at a cost. Denying yourself, saying no to the things that you want to do in life, giving up on your goals and your desires. Jesus, as the Christ, sacrificed himself for us. So following him will mean sacrificing yourself for others. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be putting flesh on these bones, what following the Christ will look like in day-to-day life. But we already know from what we've read the character of what we'll see in the next few weeks. Following the Christ will be sacrificial, inconvenient, costly, because the Christ himself suffered and we're following him. But it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it in spades. Because remember, he's the Christ, the Lord and King of all people for all time. He rules forever. And for those who give up their lives to follow him, he promises them that they'll find life. We're going to look at these verses again in a few weeks, but just briefly look at verse 35. Listen to Jesus' promise, verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. See the pattern? Suffering first, losing our lives for Jesus in the here and now, but then we'll be given eternal life. It's exactly the same as it was for Jesus. Suffering first and then rising to eternal life, so too for those who follow him. Suffering first and then rising to eternal life. In verse 38, Jesus says that one day he'll come again in his Father's glory with the holy angels. When the Christ returns, he's going to come with the complete wonders of the kingdom of God. He's going to come with the glory of the Father. He's going to come in infinite power and goodness and love. And he comes to take his followers to be with him in glory forever. Following the suffering Christ will mean suffering for us, but it will be worth it. Because he's the Christ and he lives and he reigns forever and ever. So let's follow the suffering Christ. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son. Thank you that he came to be our glorious king Father, even though it meant suffering and death, we thank you for his love for us, that he would do that. And Father, we pray that as those who would would follow him, Father, we would willingly take up our cross and deny ourselves that we might follow our suffering Christ into glory. Father, we thank you that he's coming again and we pray that that would come soon. And as we wait, Father, help us to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus as our great King and Saviour. And we ask it all in his name and for his sake. Amen.